And as you're being seated, please open to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, we'll read the whole chapter together and study this, learn from the Word of God, learn from Him as He changes us, as He speaks to us in our heart and mind, as He's glorified to do that. That pleases God when we come to listen to Him, to hear what He has to say, to submit to what He has to say. Here's what He has to say in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord." And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, And Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Father, we see this man of faith worshiping you throughout this account. God, we pray that that would be true of us, that we would be people of faith who worship. Father, that we would give of ourselves and that we would recognize that you already have everything, but you are worthy of all and more than we could ever give. We pray that as we listen to your word, as we learn from your word, that you would take the truth and plant it deep in our hearts and our minds to be changed, to be more like Christ, your Son, our Savior, in His name, amen. Well, you've probably heard it said that if you spend enough time with somebody, there's bound to be conflict. And you probably didn't even need anybody to tell you that. (laughs) If you spent any time with anybody, if you live with anybody else, children, Canyon kids, students, if you've got brothers or sisters, (laughs) you know how hard it can be. Parents, you know how hard it can be. Just people, if there are people, and the more people that there are, the more conflict that there seems to be. 
But the question that I want to ask is, is that true even of people of faith? Now, we've been talking about faith and faith being that fervent action in the hearing, the hearing of the word of Christ, hearing it, believing it, and then acting with a passionate intensity, fervent action in the hearing. That's what faith is. That's what people of faith are. And so we're not just talking about generic faith. You know, I believe in something. You know, I, I, I believe in something bigger than myself. We're talking about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that produces that fervent action for him. Is that always going to have conflict? Is that always going to come with conflict in our life? We'll, we'll talk about why that will happen, why that will be. But we might also be interested in knowing that if conflict is going to come, well, how should we handle it? How do we work through trouble, struggles, arguments, conflicts, disagreements? Well, we'll learn that through Abram as well. But first, I thought it might be helpful to talk about some of the ways that we handle conflict uh, that aren't good, that are not as helpful. And there are three popular ways. The first one is that we, we tend to ignore or avoid conflict. I just kind of want to avoid it, right? Now, it's a terrible idea, but it's one we use a lot. It's one that we use a lot. We default to it. And it looks different based on different personalities or moods. It can look like just avoiding people that you know you'll have struggles with, so you kind of duck them. You avoid them. Uh, It can look like not addressing certain issues that you know will cause conflict. We'll, We'll just avoid it and ignore it and pretend it's not there. It can look like just giving someone the silent treatment. I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen, or or I'm going to pretend it doesn't bother me. Now, one of the things that's helpful for us that we need to get better at and get into the habit of doing is to to stop calling things what the world calls them, the struggles that we have, and start calling them what the Lord calls them. Rename it what God calls it instead of lessening it, reducing it. We call it avoiding or ignoring, but really, if we're honest with ourselves and and with God, and and we call it what God calls it, well, we may may understand that there's, there's even a sin involved in avoiding or ignoring certain conflict. Let me give an example of of ways that we do this. Gossip. You know, we don't like that word gossip, right? I'm not gossiping. I'm going to share with you a prayer request, so let me tell you what he did. (laughs) I, I'm not. God, I'm telling you for her good and for your good. So here's what she said. <laughs> okay, so we we get very good at just relabeling things and and just downplaying them, making them less serious. You know, I don't really have any idols in my life. It's just really important that I work really hard for my family, and that's why I'm never home and always working. Right. <laughs> No, it's an idol in my life. Well, I just want to be the best I can be at my sport, and so I sacrifice for it, and so I don't go to church. I don't go to Koinonia group. I don't read my Bible. I don't do any of those things because it's just I have an idol in my life. So calling things what, what God calls them helps us to not excuse ourselves so that we can actually Uh, confront sin in our life. So when it comes to ignoring conflict, avoiding it, it can actually be what the Bible calls licentiousness. Just license, you know, just do whatever you want to do, and I'll avoid the conflict. I'll I'll ignore it, I'll avoid it, and and just do whatever you want. I don't want to bring it up because it might cause someone to get upset, right? Or when you just stew over it and it builds up in you like a pressure cooker so that you blow up, when you do that, you may not even remember everything that that person said or did. You just know, I can't stand that person, (laughs) right? 
And you might say, well, I was just trying to be patient. I was just trying to be gracious. I just wanted to, to get along. And, and what was happening was there was bitterness taking root inside of us. So the Bible tells us how to handle conflict, and it never tells us just avoid it. Try to ignore it. Just try to find ways around it. It's, it, it can be disobedience to ignore or avoid legitimate conflict. We'll talk about it more. Now, there is little annoying stuff that people can do that we can just look past, right? We can just get over little things. We don't have to nitpick every little thing that everybody does. But there's another extreme of, aside from avoiding and ignoring conflict. The other side is someone who thrives on it. You know people like this who just thrive on disagreeing and, and, ignore, and, and, and uh, fighting about anything. It doesn't matter whether they win or lose, right? You win some, you lose some. But this is iron, sharpening iron, and when you do that, sparks fly. <laughs> and so people that, that just thrive on it. Uh, we know people like that. But for, other, for many people around us, you know, it's not, it doesn't build them up. It doesn't edify them or bring joy into their life to be constantly involved in conflict, in, in disagreements, in arguments. And again, we can excuse ourselves. We can say, well, that's just my personality. That's just how I process things, right? That's just how I think through things. But the Bible calls this being a contentious person, contentious and, and always fighting and, and always arguing. The Bible gives us many warnings about being a contentious person and even tells us to avoid contentious people. Well, those are two different extremes, uh, thriving on it and avoiding it all the time. There's a middle one that's very popular today that it's called win-win. Find a win-win. Now, this is not always a bad one. This is not always a bad idea. The, the idea of win-win is that you know, we're, we're fighting about something. Let's both find a way to get what we want, right, so that there, there's, there's no conflict. But the problem is the heart of always doing whatever it takes to get what I want, right? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll work on conflict. I'll, I'll give a little bit here and there as long as I get what I want. And see, that's a continual heart problem for us when we're always seeking to get whatever we want. Sometimes there are things that it would be a lot better if we didn't get what we wanted. The Bible calls this setting our minds on things below rather than things above. The Bible calls this being discontent, being unappeasable as we constantly seek to get what we want. It even calls this being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so we've got a whole range of options for how to deal with conflict from one extreme to another and anything in between. But not only can we not deal with conflict effectively between people in those options, we can actually be sinning more against God even as it brings peace between people, we, we can actually make it worse, even though it seems better. So what should we do? What do we, what do, we do with conflict? Well, Abram, as a man of faith, demonstrates for us how to deal with conflict. Now, as Pastor Kyle said last week, he reminded us, Abram is not Jesus. He's not the perfect example. He's not the one that we look to for, for perfection, but he is a good example of what it looks like for a person of faith to begin, to stumble, to fall, to get up, to continue, to, to be faithful, to fall again, <laughs> and then to keep on, keep going, continuing in the faith. 
So before we even get to Abram, we need to make sure we have the right focus because remember that Genesis is the account of God working out his perfect plan, working through imperfect people to bring about that perfect plan. God is the one who is always the hero. He's always the one who's the main character and the center. But he works through human beings, weak human beings, imperfect, sinful, messy human beings. And we, we can and we should be learning from these examples the good ones and the bad ones, so that we can grow our faith. You know, we've said before, the Bible is not only for how to get out of this world and to stay out of hell and, and avoid death, but also for how to get out of this, how to get you um, into the world to come, right? We're, we're trying not just to get out of this world, we're trying to get the world out of us, and God brings us through this world before he takes us out of it. So what we're seeing in Abram is how a person of faith lives, Sometimes he messes up, sometimes he does well, but increasingly people of faith hear the word of God, obey it in love and in worship, and we live that way for the glory of our God. So, the key that tips us off, that this is what Abram is doing in this passage, is that he is correcting his thinking, he's correcting his way of life, and this is in your notes, in his return to worship the Lord, or worshiping the Lord. That's what he does. Did you see that in verse 4? He came back to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And we said that's a technical term for worship. Abram went back to worshiping. You remember he did that in the first part of chapter 12. Then when he decided to go down to Egypt, there was no worship. There was no worship mentioned. There was no um, Abram's doing what the Lord tells him. There's, there, as we said, it may not have been sinful for him to go to Egypt, but what he did there certainly was. And there was nothing in here about Abram worshiping. So in this passage, in chapter 13, he comes back to worship. And look at the end of the passage, verse 18. Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So he's beginning and he's ending with worship and he's going to continue in worship and that's how we know that his mind is going to be set straight. So the first thing to keep in mind for all the time, whether there's conflict or not, is that, live, that we need to live a life of continual worship or you will always go wrong. You will always go wrong when you're not living that life of worship. So Abram begins and ends here with worship. Our love for God comes before our love for anyone and anything else. But then that love for God always comes with a love for others. You can't do one or the other. They're a package deal. So, so let's look at the passage now. Let's look at what Abram does as he resolves the conflict that comes about in three parts in this account. The first one, number one in her notes, is that we need to recognize that conflict will happen for a person of faith. Verse, verses one through seven, recognize that conflict will happen. Abram is here living his life of faith. He's returned to worship. He's, he's obediently living in the land that God promised. He's not looking for any trouble. He doesn't divide, invite it on himself, but it comes to him. There's strife here between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. One thing that we need to notice very quickly is that it says that Abram is very rich, and yet he is a man of faith, Right? So, that helps us to understand, in our world today, there's a lot of people that are angry with people who have wealth. There's a lot of talk against being wealthy, and the Bible does not condemn wealth, does it? it the often misquoted verse that comes to our mind is 1 Timothy 6.10, which actually tells us it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. 
right? It's the love of money. Whether you have it or not, you can love it, and it becomes a root of all kinds of evil. But Abram here is very rich, and yet he's also a man of faith. But we need to keep in mind that conflict is going to happen. Conflict will come to us, arguments and struggles and disagreements. But you, brother, you, sister, should not be the cause of the conflict. Do, do not be a contentious person. Uh, Romans twelve eighteen says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, everybody. Those on the outside, well, verse, 18, uh, verse 14 of Romans 12 says, bless those who persecute you. That's talking about those people who are on the outside. Uh, verse 16 says we're to live in harmony with one another. That's those on the inside. So, so yes, it, it's, it's all. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So Christians, people of faith, should not be the ones causing trouble, causing conflict. We shouldn't be known as troublemakers. You remember Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, the, the six things the Lord hates, even seven that are an abomination to him? And it includes things like pride and lying and murder and wicked heart, those who work hard to do evil, false witnesses. But the last one is one who sows discord among brothers. You know, a conf- conflict that's always happening between brothers. A person who, who thrives on conflict. God says he hates that. So this is important to the Lord that we're not causing conflict. And here's the strong warning in Titus 3. Uh, Paul writes, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Why? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Did you realize that? If you live for conflict, if you thrive on arguments, God says you are warped and sinful and self-condemned. Those are strong words. And he says other Christians should, should avoid you after they've tried to warn you once and then twice. So two women shared an office together. And there was a window in the office. And one said, the window must stay open or I will suffocate and die. The other woman said, the window has to stay closed or I will catch pneumonia and die. <laughs> And the two of them argued incessantly. So a woman from the next office came over and said, I have the solution. Leave the window closed until one of you dies. And then open it until the other of you dies. (laughs) And then we'll all be at peace. (laughs) That's no way to resolve conflict, is it? (laughs) It's not the way Christians should act. Jesus said people should know us by our love. By by our love, and he even prayed, Jesus prayed earnestly before he was crucified that we would be one, even as he and his Father are one. So you, brother or sister, should not be the one who causes conflict. Yet, not all conflict can be avoided. And in fact, not all conflict should be avoided. There are times when it is appropriate and right for there to be conflict. And it would be, as we said before, sinful not to confront, not to have conflict. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, there have to be factions among you. Why? Why does there have to be some division? So he says, so that you can tell who's a brother or sister and who's not. John said in 1 John 2, they went out from us. Speaking of the people who had left, the people who were not brothers and sisters, they went out for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, why? So that it would be plain. So it would become plain that they all are not of us. So there have to be some 
conflict. There have to be some divisions, not to mention the conflict that's going on within each one of us believers. Romans 7 explains, I don't understand what I'm doing. I hate what I'm doing. I want to do what the Lord says, but I only keep doing these sinful things, and I, uh, we've got this conflict, right? So what we see here, though, is that Abram does not bring the conflict, but the conflict arises out of circumstances and other people. So even as Abram is worshiping, the people that work for him start to fight for those who work for his nephew, Lot. And you say, well, do they really have that much stuff that they can't get along? Well, it's important that Moses gives us the end of verse 7. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. See, it wasn't just Abram and Lot. There were a lot of other people who were already there in the land who probably already had the best spots in the land. Abram and Lot were fighting over the rest of it, and there just wasn't enough for the two of them. But that's how the struggle comes to Abram. Conflict will come to people of faith. It will happen. It shouldn't come from us. We shouldn't be the ones who instigated, who started. And not all of it is wrong. But if this is true, that conflict is going to come, it's going to happen, how do we resolve it? How do we work through it? If, if thriving on it all the time is wrong, if avoiding it and trying to ignore it is wrong, and even trying to find a way to get what I want isn't always the right answer, What is the right way? That leads us to number two, verses 8 through 13, where we learn to resolve the conflict as a person of faith. Resolve it. Now, Abram gives us four C's. Well, he doesn't, but we're learning. (laughs) Four C's uh, to resolving conflict that Abram lives out for us here. So the first C in your notes, if we're going to resolve conflict, is we need to confront the issue. We need to confront the issue. Verse 8. Verse 8, Abram goes to Lot to address the issue. Rather than avoiding it and just letting it boil over and, you know, waiting until it explodes, rather than both sides growing in bitterness, Abram says, there's a conflict beginning and I need to address it. This is important because we need to understand that Christians are not supposed to be pacifists. We're not supposed to just live and let live and anybody does whatever they want. (laughs) And we all just get along because everybody does whatever they want. We don't hide from conflict. We're not consumed with it, but we don't hide and shy away from it. When there is an issue, we need to confront it. We need to work on the issue. Jesus gave us instructions on multiple occasions for how to confront issues, how to resolve conflict. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you go to church... That's not the word he uses, but he says, if you're, if you're a church, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, tell him that's his problem. I'm at church. If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. He says, get out. Get out of there. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says it's so important that we resolve conflict, that we confront the issue when we need to, that you don't even get to worship until you resolve an issue. And notice that it's not if you have something against somebody, you know that somebody else has something against you. You go resolve that issue. What if you're the one with the issue? Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, if you're praying to God and you remember you have something against somebody else, Stop praying and forgive that person. Why? So that you can be forgiven by God. 
These are powerful words, right? This is not something that God takes lightly. When, when there's conflict, you need to go address it. You don't get to pray. You don't get to worship. You go work it out first. Probably the most well-known instructions are in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, that some people call the church discipline passage, and I prefer to call it the restoring a sinning brother passage. Jesus says, go to your brother and deal with the conflict. Deal with the issue, the sin that's causing all the conflict. So the first C of conflict resolution that Abram does for us, he lives out for us, is he goes to confront the issue, the sin. The next C, care for the person. Care for the person in verse 8. As Abram comes to confront the issue, he says, Abram, to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsman and my herdsman. Why? We're brothers. We're kinsmen. We're family. We shouldn't be fighting about things. His relationship with Lot was that important. The issue needs to be addressed, but I care about you. We're related. And brother and sister, we're related spiritually in Jesus, even more strongly than blood. We don't have to tackle each other to tackle this problem, right? Abram didn't come at Lot with a list of, you know, this is what your guys did to my guys, or this is why you owe me an apology, or, you know, this is what you need to make right. He didn't come at Lot dredging up all the he said, she said, this is what he did, and that's what she did. There's a problem, Lot. We need to work on it, and we can and we should because we're brothers. We're kinsmen. You remember that passage that I just referred to in Matthew 18? The reason I prefer restoring a sinning brother over church discipline is because Jesus says, if he listens to you, what have you done? You successfully completed the steps of church discipline. (laughs) No, he says, you have gained your brother. That's who it is. That's who we're talking to and confronting with sin and, and tackling the issue with a brother or sister. You've gained that brother. You don't want it to keep going and, you know, I get to do all these steps of church discipline. No, you're trying to restore a brother. You're constantly working with the person to bring them to repentance. That's why the instructions that we have in Galatians 6 say, restore a brother caught in any transgression in a spirit of gentleness. And watch out for yourself lest you too be tempted. Because we're not on high horses looking down at everybody else, pointing our finger at everybody else and saying, you sinned, you sinned, you messed up, I never do. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, before you go trying to take specks out of people's eyes, get the log out of your own eye. The problem or the conflict can be sin, and the person may be choosing sin. The, the person may be the one causing the conflict by choosing sin and, and rather than submitting to the Lord, but we still don't attack the person. We don't come at the person and, and tear him down or, or tear her apart. We call the person to repentance and caring for them the whole time in a spirit of gentleness. You know, that's the example that we see from Paul in Philippians 4 too. He says, I, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And he says, my faithful companion, help him. Help him work it out. You can almost hear him, please, you know, work through that, whatever that conflict was. So Christians are not pacifists. We've got to confront conflict. But while we do, we care for the person on the other side. The next one, and this may not be your favorite one, but this is an important one, concede when you can. C-O-N-C-E-D-E. <laughs> Concede when you can. Give it up. 
Give up. Lose the conflict. Lose the argument. For the sake of fellowship and care, for the sake of your obedience to the Lord, be willing to give of yourself. Sacrifice what you want rather than demand you get what you want. In these verses, Abram doesn't seek the win-win. Hey, let's divide up the land. Let's make sure that I get some of that really good land over there and you get some of that land and and let's work together on this. He says, Lot, you, you just, you take it. Whatever you want, Lot. The solution here is there's only so much land. We can't both stay here. You decide. Abram is the older one. Abram's the richer one. He's the stronger, more powerful one. He's the one that has God's very promises on his life. He's got God's covenant. (laughs) He could have pulled the God card. God's talking to me. (laughs) I think I should get to choose what land I get. But that's not what Abram does. He says, Lot, you choose. Take Take the land, whatever you want. Now, it sounds kind of easy, you know, just removed from the situation, but this is what Jesus calls us to also. And this is going to hit us a little bit harder. If you'll keep your place here in Genesis, but turn to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching us what it looks like for believers to live in life, a life of holiness, a life that, that is bringing glory to God. At the beginning, in Matthew 5, he, he says, you've heard it said several times. Your teachers have told you this. They've said this. They've said that. And some of what they said has come out of the Scriptures, and they've twisted it. Other things that they've said have just come out of their own minds. But here in Matthew 5, verse 38, what they start with is the Word of God. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, That is Scripture. Those are words from Scripture. But what they had done is they had twisted it out of the arena of judges, of of government, of right punishment for wrongs done within the uh, government, within the the authorities that God had placed over them. They'd taken it out of that realm and they'd applied it to me personally. Boy, you do something against me, I'm going to do it right back to you. And they they were telling people, that's okay to do. That's revenge. It's retaliation. Lex talionis right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You do something to me, you better expect it right back. You've heard it said that, but I say to you, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. Oh, okay, Jesus, what does that look like? Not resisting an evil person. He gives us four different statements here, and these are going to strike at us. These are going to be difficult for us, but we need to hear these. The first one he says is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, some of us have misunderstood this and, and have, have thought that Jesus is, is, is condoning just pacifism. If somebody comes to strike you, you just let them and you just become a punching bag, right? And, and you, just, you just let them beat you. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to defend yourself or to defend your family. If you, if you look at the word slap, this is not a closed-fisted strike or punch. This is a slap, a smack, And he says, on your right cheek. So, I mean, most people are right-handed. If they're going to slap you, they're going to slap you on your left cheek. So the idea here is this backhanded slap across your right cheek. It's not intended to inflict pain. He's talking about your personal dignity. Somebody wants to come and injure your dignity, slap you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Be willing to sacrifice your own dignity. Don't resist this evil person. This is what he says. The next one, verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
Again, this is not someone saying, I'm going to sue you for everything you've got. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to court and just take everything away from you and your family. No, Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to defend yourself, again, or your family. This is somebody who's coming with a, with a frivolous lawsuit. I'm going to sue the shirt off your back, right, essentially. He says, if they're going to try to sue the shirt off of you, give them your suit also. Give them double what they're asking for. They want to smack you across the right cheek, give them the left cheek. They want to take your, your underclothes, give them your overclothes. Be willing to give up your personal property to other people. This is like right out of the Constitution. I have rights, Jesus, don't you know? (laughs) Jesus says, yeah, you have those rights in this world. But, But I'm asking you, I'm telling you, not to resist an evil person, be willing to give up your dignity, give, be willing to give up your property, be willing, the third one, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is our personal liberty. Roman soldiers could come conscript you and say, look, I need to go over there and I need your animal to carry my stuff, so you're coming with me. The law said they could do that. The law said up to one mile. Jesus says if they're asking for one, you give them two. Give up your liberty, your property, your dignity, whatever. It, this, is, this is what Jesus is telling Christians. This is how it looks to live as a Christian. And the fourth statement here in verse 42 is, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He says, in all of this giving up of yourself, don't grow bitter. You still need to be generous. You still need to be loving and giving and, and help people who need it. You may have lost all of your dignity, property, and liberty, but he says if you have anything left, you still need to give it when somebody's in need. Well, that's really hard. Jesus, aren't you asking a lot? I mean, it's no wonder that the next verses after this are, you heard it said, hate your enemy, love your friend. Jesus says, nope, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you remember in in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, you guys are suing each other? Why don't, you just, why don't you just rather be wronged? Just let yourself be defrauded. For people of faith, the most important thing is not what I want, not how I can get what I want. It, it's not what I get or, or getting all of that. All that I have and ever need is in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And He will take care of me. He will give me what I need. Someone said a morsel of bread with God is better than a feast without Him. That's, that's true for people of faith. So do you see this connection between faith and contentment, b- between a lack of faith or weak faith and arguing, demanding to get what you want? It actually shows weak or missing faith to fight with people over stuff, over things. If I have faith that God will provide for me, if I know and trust that, that Jesus will take care of me, then I don't have to be the militant protector of everything that I have, right? I don't have to demand that I get what I want. Faith, this kind of faith, is the antidote to coveting, to jealousy, to self-interest, to quarreling, to so many of the issues that we, that we deal with. Fighting over who gets what is not only the other person's fault, it's mine because of weak faith or missing faith. Is your God the sovereign, wise, good creator who cares for you and, and, and provides for you? Or is he not? Is he weak and uncaring and you've got to take care of yourself? I've got to get, make sure I get mine, right? Or do you trust the Lord God in faith? 
That's the connection between faith and resolving conflict. It is not faith, brothers and sisters. It is not, no matter what you hear from false teachers out there, it is not faith to demand from God that he give you what you want. You don't have faith in God if you're demanding him to give you something. God will give you all you need. He tells you to ask him for it. He tells you to praise him and thank him for it. But he's been so good to give us all that we need and more than we could ever need. And he's given us himself. He's given us his own son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus. If there's conflict between you and someone over something, just give it to them. Not because you're weak, not because you're trying to avoid the conflict, you've already addressed the conflict, but you're caring for the person and you say, you know what, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I just, I'm going to give this to you. Not because I'm weak, but because I believe that my God will take care of me without that. It's a strengthening of your faith, not a weakness. Even if it costs you your dignity, your property, your liberty, confront the issue, care for the person, and if you can, when you can, just give it, give it up. Now, when we're talking about sin, we can't just concede. We can't just say, well, go ahead and live in sin. It's okay, (laughs) because it's not. But when it's something like this, trust the Lord in faith. That's the third C, the fourth one. Content yourself in what your Lord gives you. Content yourself there. Verses 12 and 13, Lot chooses for himself the best of the land. What did Abram do? Pout? Did he get mad and throw a temper tantrum? You know, Lot, I mean, I gave you the choice. You're supposed to choose this one. (laughs) Right? How often do we do that, right? I mean, I gave you the, I cut the cake into two pieces. You were supposed to take the smaller one, right? I mean, what do you, this is, again, we talked about the Bible deals with in real life. What if you're dealing with somebody who's only looking out for himself? He's taking the good part. You let him have it, and you content yourself in what God, your God, has given you. It doesn't get much more real than this. I mean, he just takes it, and, and he doesn't even look back. Lot just goes, thanks, Abram. <laughs> I'm taking the good land. Verse 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. He settled there. He was content with what God gave him, the land that God had promised to him. Lot went out to the land he chose for himself. It had good land. It was a good, fertile land. There was good grazing land there. It had the cities with the nightlife and the convenience and all of the the excitement. Lot had it all. He had the good land and the cities and, and all of that that the world saw as good. But don't look past verse 10 where it says, Lot lifted his eyes and saw for himself that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. It was like the garden of the Lord. It was like the garden of Eden. And, and Egypt and, and Zoar, we don't know where that is today, but must have been good because all of this is compared to the garden of Eden, the garden of the Lord. Lot saw it as good for himself. He looked, he saw, he liked, he took. Right? from our previous studies, is mankind any good at deciding for himself what good is? He's not. Look what he chose in verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. With his eyes, he saw goodness. God saw what it really was, wicked and great sinners. The idea of wicked is breaking up or ruining what is good and desirable in a person or in society. That's the word wicked. Just break it all up, ruin it all. 
They're wrecking themselves and their society, tearing it apart with their wickedness. Can we identify with that today, with people around us tearing apart our society, tearing apart the fabric, trying to destroy families and babies and anything else, and praise God for Roe versus Wade being overturned this week. Amen. But mankind is still struggling and fighting and protesting and, and doing everything they can. That's what these people in Sodom were doing. They were tearing apart their own civilization with their wickedness. And he says that they were great sinners. The word for sin is missing the mark, failing, coming short of God's plan, His will, His purpose. You remember that God created mankind with His purpose, His, His goals in mind, His will. God dictates to mankind. Whenever we miss those, we fall short. It's called sin. But these people were great at it. They excelled at it. They tried really hard. There was an abundance of sin against the Lord. All sin is against the Lord. But they really worked at it, and they excelled at it. What looked good to Lot was being ripped apart by great sin and wickedness, and he couldn't see it. But Abram, he probably couldn't see it either yet. He would see it soon. But he didn't just sit there and stare and wonder what might have been. Oh, I wish I could have done that too. He's content here in the land that God gave him. We're reminded of 1 Timothy 6, that we came into this world with nothing and we're leaving with nothing, Right? What should take the place of wanting more and more, First Timothy, Paul says? Godliness with contentment. That's great gain. Godliness with contentment. I'm going to be content with what God, my God, has given me. Hebrews 13.5 helps us to see this connection between faith in God, hearing and believing and acting. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money. And in that place, in the place of love of money, be content with what you have. How do we do that? Because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Instead of the love of money, instead of wanting more things, instead of finding my comfort and my satisfaction, my contentment in my stuff, find it in your Lord who will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You have Jesus Christ, brother, sister. What more could you need? That's how a person of faith resolves conflict. You have to confront the issue, but you care for the person. You concede when you can, wherever you can, and you content yourself in your Lord. Listen, that's what God did with us. He made everything perfect. He made everything without sin, and then we fell into sin. We chose to rebel against Him. God said, I've got to confront this issue. I've got to confront this head on, but I'm going to care for these people. I've got to care for these people. They're made in my image. I made them, and I, and I love them, and they will bring me glory when I save them. So he conceded where he could. He couldn't give up on his holy standard. He couldn't lessen himself. He couldn't give up his holiness, but he could give up his son. His son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, he gave him up for us. And then he was content with the satisfaction of Jesus' perfect sacrifice that he gave for us. And no matter what we end up with in this life, we have more than we could ever hope to have because we have Jesus. Well, as we close out this chapter, notice number three, the third part from Abram's example, that we resume worship. We resume worship after resolving conflict. Verses 14 through 18, Abram and Lot have separated and Abram, Abram just got ripped off. He got the raw end of the deal. And now he's alone on top of it. Yet he's never alone. 
brother and sister, you are never alone. The Lord comes to him and blesses him for resolving the conflict through faith in God's promises. And God says, look, remember my promises. Remember the word that I spoke to you. He even furthers the description of it. Can you count dust? Because if you could, then you could count all of the offspring I'm going to give to you when you get this land. And the only way for Abram to accept any of that is by faith. Can't see any of it happening. He can't right now see how any of it could ever happen, but he doesn't waver. Because instead of seeing for himself, verse 14, God says to Abram, now lift up your eyes and look. Look at what I'm going to show you. Lot may have looked and seen for himself, but I want you to look now and see how I'm gonna, what I'm going to do. And amazingly here, it's not in the English, but in the Hebrew, the word na is the word please. God, God speaking to a person says, please, Abram, look up and look at the land that I'm giving you. There are only four times in the entire Old Testament where God says to a person, please, this is one of them. The other three, by the way, are when God says a son will be born to old Abraham. Genesis 22, when he says, sacrifice your only son, Isaac. Exodus 11, God says, please, Israel, ask Egypt for, for all the stuff that they're gonna give you. Plunder them on your way out. But this is God tenderly dealing with his, with his man, this man of faith who believes in him. Survey it. Get up and walk through it. God just carefully, lovingly leading this man. Survey it because I'm going to give it to you. And Hebrews 11, 9 says it was by faith that Abram obeyed that. He sojourned in the land. He went all throughout it. Without being able to see how it will happen, without understanding hardly any of it, he believes the Lord and he obeys. So he moves his tent, he builds another altar, and he continues to worship. He didn't stop worshiping. He started out that way. He resolved conflict by worshiping God. He continues it, and he he resumes worship again afterward. Keep in mind that that's the way that we live, a life of worship. Not just on Sundays, not just when we're singing, but all of the time. Our, Our worship to God is obedience to him because of our love for him. No matter how it turns out, whether you're cheated, whether you didn't get what you wanted, not only are you to be content with your God, you are to worship your God. Worship this good God who is worthy of our worship. We read Romans 12, 18 earlier, as, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The next verses are so instructive and helpful for us. When you've completed all this, when, when you've been cheated, when you've really been wronged, when you've been taken advantage of, your faith is going to be tested. So he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Even if nobody notices or cares that you've been wronged, nobody cares or notices that that you didn't get what you wanted and you gave up everything so that the other person could, God says, I will reward you and punish them. So you live the life of faith, worshiping God continually that he has called you to, to live, giving your enemy food when they're hungry, drink when they're thirsty, and trusting God to work out everything. And follow Abram's example. Abram's example here is that you may be alone, but you're never alone in verse 14. Abram remembers God's promises in verses 15 to 16. Abram lives in obedience of faith. He says he does exactly what God tells him to do, verses 17 and 18. And then verse 18 never stops worshiping. So our application. First point in our application is to repent where we have not resolved conflict God's way. 
if you know that there's conflict between you and somebody else or, or, or because of a situation, or because of sin, whatever it is, whatever the conflict is, you are a person of faith. When you are a person of faith, believing in Christ Jesus, you've repented of your sins, we still mess up. There's still conflict even that we can't help. We need to repent where we have not resolved it God's way. We have to confess. We have to say the same thing God says about it, right? Don't sugarcoat it. Don't say, well, I was just... What I was actually doing was not just to God, but to others. Confess this is what happened. Repent of not resolving it right. And then next, commit to resolving conflict God's way. The way that honors God. Commit to, ser- to, to serving God, to serving others this way. Remember, the, the, the big idea here in, in Genesis is that God's plan will not be interrupted God's plan will come about and his plan for your life, brother and sister, I can say with 100% truthfulness, accuracy, and, and certainty, is for you to be more like Jesus because he tells us that in his word. That will not be interrupted. But this is part of how we can work with God toward that. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are so good. God, that you have not only made us You've cared for us and you have saved us when we have believed in Jesus Christ, your son. When we've turned away from ourselves and sin and believed in him. God, thank you for that. Lord, you have been the perfect example of how to resolve the conflict that we brought about. Father, I pray that we would remember all of the sin that we committed against you. That we would remember the conflict that we brought about. But that you, that you forgave in Jesus. God, that we would never dare to hold against someone else an offense when we have offended you so greatly by our sin. Father, I pray that you would give us humility. Lord, that we would be able to obey what your word has taught us, what Jesus has said, what Abram lived out. God, that we need to be taking care of people. Lord, that we need to be working through issues as they come up. Father, that that you would receive glory as we are changed by this process. Father, that we live and speak differently. People would see that as they're scratching their heads. They they would say there's no other way that that could happen except their God. Their God is so powerful and so good. A God you are. We pray that you would help us to keep that in mind, that we would live that out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.